long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is James Marone, a political scientist at Brown University. Professor Marone is one of the most eminent political scientists in our profession, as well as the author of 11 books. And so it's really an honor for me to talk with him today about his latest book, Republic of Wrath, How American Politics Turned Tribal from George Washington to Donald Trump. Professor Marone, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. You know, uh, in... The book, you, as, as it, the subtitle suggests, you take a look at divides in American politics from the very beginning. And, and, and that's something I think it's probably important to emphasize, right, that what we've seen, at least in some ways recently, isn't exactly new and that we've been we've we've seen this sort of thing from well, the very founding of the republic. Right. Yes, that's true. Um, the big question animating the book was, is the intense partisanship of today, is it new or have we been here before? And one of the surprises is how often we've uh, encountered many of the things we're encountering now. Um, huge differences. The election of 1800 was really as nasty as any election in recent times. Um, there was an era in Congress between 1830 and 1860 when there were 70 brawls, uh, blood uh, blood brawls, including um, uh, duels uh, on or near the floor of Congress. Uh, uh, a guy named Hammond, who was a, a congressman at the time, said that uh, the only members who don't carry a knife and a pistol are those with two pistols. Uh, <laughs> we've had violent coups. And in North Carolina, there was a, a black-run city, the largest city, Wilmington, North Carolina, and there was just a, a bloody coup. They just threw out the leaders. And of course, the era leading up to and af during and after the Civil War had a kind of violence and bloodshed that's really uh, unparalleled uh, in any uh, advanced uh, industrial democracy. So we have seen a lot of this stuff and worse, uh, as you say, right from the founding. But but I guess something that seems to make this different, at least in part, is that when we look at our two major political parties, uh, oddly, one of the things that maybe makes this different is that the parties internally are more, more cohesive, which which some people might think paradoxically leads to more polarization or more division. Is that is that right? That's absolutely right. Uh, the parties used to be have lots of overlap. And uh, now, if you're a liberal, you're in the Democratic Party. If you're a conservative, you're almost certainly in the Republican Party. So just in terms of policy differences, we've really separated out the parties. You'll remember that the Political Science Association, in its wisdom in 1950, said what we need is more yeah. difference, <laughs> real policy difference between the parties. Never listen to political scientists, <laughs> except for the two of us, Michael. Um, so that on one level, we've just differentiated the parties. But one of the big findings I came up with that really surprised me was a difference underneath the policy differences. You see, the two great battles that run through American history that really top things up 
our race, of course, the great uh, original sin, the race line running through American politics, and generation after generation of immigrants who uh, evoke intense nativism. Those are the two battle lines that have always shook up American politics. And I should add, when you're trying to keep people separate, either racially or in terms of ethnic groups, gender controls and sexual controls become very, very important. So those three things really um, are powerful dividers in American politics. And here's the the crucial dimension. The parties used to split them up. If you go right back in American history, uh, the Republicans and before them, the uh, Whigs and even the Federalists, they were quite enlightened about race, but they were terrible nativists. On the other side, the Democrats, ironically compared to today, they were the party of immigrants. They stood by the immigrants. They, they had them voting when they were still seasick from uh, crossing the Atlantic, but they were the party of white supremacy. So the parties divided the great American conflicts. One party embraced by the standards of the day, African-Americans and hated immigrants, the other party did the reverse. So when you came to the gut deep tribal issues, the parties separated them out. Starting in the 1930s and then slowly but surely across the last 90 years, the parties put them together. So the Democratic Party became unexpectedly from white supremacy to the party of African-Americans and then the the party of other immigrant groups like Latinos. And and by the 1990s became unexpectedly the party of Asians. Asian-Americans were the last one of the last groups to vote for Bob Dole, like a majority went Republican. But by the year 2000, Asians, too, had gone into the Democratic Party. So now, starting around 2000, for the first time in American history, all the so-called minorities were on one side and white voters, the majority of white voters, were on the other side. So we separated the parties by tribal identity for the first time in American history. And that separation got more and more intense and played off the policy differences. So the differences between the parties for the first time in American history are really well and truly and really tribal differences. And that gives an intensity like nothing we've ever seen in terms of party identity. We've had lots of very bitter rivalries in American politics, to be sure, but the parties never mainstream, never injected the great tribal differences about who are we, so-called minorities on one side and liberals, and white people not so sure they like uh, or are anxious about racial or immigrant changes. Now they're all in one party, as I say, for the first time. Now, some people who maybe want to try to minimize this or put the most positive spin on it, I guess you could say, would say, well, sure, that the people who are the most politically active are like that. And but the, the larger the larger country isn't necessarily all that polarized as we see from these maybe small minorities that just happen to be really loud and tweet a lot and so forth. And uh, what do you think about that? Is there is there something to that or is this actually spreading out much further than the very politically active sort of people at the edges on both sides? 
Uh, yes and no, I'd have to say, Michael. The most politically active, the base, is very, very intense. But I do believe it's spreading out so that 20 years ago, you could say, well, it's only the leaders and the very, very actively involved. Now, little by little, it's spreading out, which makes, and we'll talk about this some more uh, later in the show, I'm sure, I'm sure, but what, which makes it imperative that we begin to rethink our political system so it's not only in the hands of the most intense, that insofar as primaries, for example, and limited electorates um, uh, run the country, then we're going to be in the hands more and more of these very intense minorities. My call is we must have larger political participation in voting. We've got to get, uh, like other countries that do this, it's very important, I think, that we get all the people who generally sit on the sidelines into voting. And um, I, I indeed admire the Australian system that actually requires you to vote or the Brazilian system where uh, the theory is, you know, driving uh, too fast is actually less of a violation to the body politic than sitting this out. If we keep restrictions on voting, then um, then we're, we're going to be in real trouble because those bases that are most intense will drive our politics. And that's not a good thing. You know, and I think you mentioned the Australian system. I think what a lot of people don't appreciate when they hear mandatory voting, they think that you'll be locked up for not voting. And, and of course, the reality in Australia is, is a lot is a lot different for that. You're actually not even required to vote for a specific candidate. It's kind of a show up thing. And and they have rates, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, somewhere in the low 90 percent range of, uh, of voting. Low 90 percent. And the key about it is it's not just that they're prodding them with pitchforks like you get to the polls or else. They make it very, very easy. It's easy to vote. And as a result, the, uh, the, the, the people have basically created a, a kind of ethos that it is your responsibility to vote and everyone votes. Now, we have a long history of partisan manipulation of the vote. Back in the 1830s, the Whigs discovered that all these immigrants coming into America was the first great big surge of immigrants, and they were all going to the Democratic Party. The Whigs thought they would be lost. And then they came up with a very clever thing. They started to champion registration laws. If we can get a good registry law, the Whigs told one another, we will be saved. That means saved from Democrats. And they imposed registration explicitly and avowedly and honestly as a way to cut down the Democratic vote. The thing that most surprised me, the most unexpected thing I found as I went, uh, as I went through this book was to see how much the vote itself has been up for political grabs. We never really settled. The Constitution doesn't really say how we're going to vote, what the voting process is going to be. They just punted it to the states. And what was so interesting to me, the first election I did was the 1800 election. Seven out of the 16 states changed the rules of play during the election so that they could make sure that their party, whoever the majority was in that state, could carry that state. Even Thomas Jefferson, who had been a 
big believer that the Electoral College ought to go by district so you could really reflect the people in Jefferson's true democratic fashion. Well, he took one look at his native Virginia, and he realized that John Adams was going to get one Electoral College vote. And he wrote to, <laughs> uh, governor, uh, to the governor, Governor Monroe, later President Monroe, but he wrote to the governor saying, let's change the rules. And Monroe, Monroe sure enough, changed the rules. Winner take all in, uh, in Virginia to keep Adams from getting that one Electoral College vote. So our votes themselves have been up for grabs. And that, that really surprised me how that went all the way back, even further back than the gerrymander uh, of 1812. We've been fiddling with the rules, how you vote, as much as we've been fighting about what we vote over. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about state control, because certainly at least for traditional Republicans, state control on, on voting and a lot of things is a is a bedrock principle. And in the book, you write that states used to be considered these laboratories of democracy, which is one of the main sort of textbook type arguments for federalism. But now you say they're more like laboratories of authoritarianism. And I was hoping you could expand on that a little bit. The states used to be seen as laboratories of democracy. So things a few states would try. Social Security, votes for women in the Western states and other things would bubble up. They'd be laboratories. Now, however, what has begun to happen is that the majority party has taken a bare knuckle approach to try to set the rules uh, just so that its side can win. We we're seeing this all the time now. Here's Pennsylvania deciding they should gerrymander and then elect judges uh, by district. So to make sure that we don't have um, we don't have voting rules uh, uh, played out the way they were. So that uh, in, in the defeat of Donald Trump, Wisconsin robbing the governor of um, most of his powers after the state elects a Democrat, North Carolina doing likewise. Again and again, we see states changing the rules of play, the fundamental rules of play to make sure one party wins. And that's a very dangerous path we're on. And political scientists, we've begun to say each party has now tried authoritarian things. North Carolina led the way, strip any Democrat who gets elected of his powers. And now other states are following. Wisconsin followed North Carolina, Pennsylvania following Wisconsin. You know, it has to be said, as a political scientist, you'll appreciate this, Michael, we're taught to be balanced. We know we have always conservative and liberal kids in our class. And so we work hard to try Oh, sure, we take sides. We believe in certain uh, policies. I'm a big believer in national health insurance, for example. But you try to be balanced. But we, it's no, no getting around it. Uh, if you want uh, fancy words, political science say asymmetric polarization. But look, let's be honest. We have a party that's exiting democracy. It's really hard to run a two-party system when one party has stopped being playing by democratic rules and feels like, oh my gosh, if the other party gets in, we're doomed. 
reflecting that tribal uh, division that I've been talking about sooner. And so the rules, the proper rules of play seem less important in this era of experiments in authoritarianism, that rules of play seem less important than just winning at all costs. And that winning at all costs is unraveling the basic fabric of the republic. And it's been happening for some years now, but we can see it more and more uh, in, in, in just the, the, the way it's being played out. I really shudder to see what's happening in Michigan, where a little known, never noticed uh, board that simply approved what the counties did to Republicans, to Democrats. Of course, you want it to be bipartisan. And now the Republicans are furious at their two Republican members who approved Joe Biden's clear victory in the state of Michigan. Well, it it unravels to the point where people are not willing to abide by fixed rules. It's all about winning because if the other side wins, we're doomed. Then then we are doomed. And that, that gets to the point I think you make in the book where you say that politics today isn't so much about policy as it's about really identity, right? Oh, it's so true. I've given some of the basis for that before, that not only do we have huge policy differences, but we really have differences in who's in each party. I remember I'm a citizen of um, a small town in New Hampshire, and I remember going to the dump one day, um, and I heard two guys very, very agitated. This was during the 2016 election. And one said to the other, if those immigrants keep coming, we'll never elect a Republican again. We'll be lost. And they were really upset that the country they thought they knew was coming to an end. And they resonated so intensely with um, with Donald Trump's promise to restore the country they thought they knew. It became more than just a sense of, I don't believe in national health insurance, I'm going to vote for the Republican, uh, or I believe we should uh, rethink our immigration policy, um, I'll vote for the Democrat. Uh, it really was something more intense. The country we thought we knew is being lost. It's not the first time this has happened. Both Abraham Lincoln and the great fire eater, a man named Lowndes, um, they both said, you know, the trouble in 1860 with this election is we're no longer talking about party issues, that is policies. We're talking about race and slavery, and there's no compromise there. Well, we've gotten to the point now where it feels to many people like there's no compromise on the issues because each party is offering a different answer to the, that most fundamental question, who are we as Americans? And if you put all the, or the vast majority of African-Americans and Latinos uh, and women in one party and immigrants, uh, uh, second-generation Americans in one party and the other party made up mainly of whites, uh, it, it permits the basis, the most intense partisans to really feel like this is a battle for the stake of who America is going to be. 
Now, right now, I know that there are plenty of Republicans, and I think of people in the mold of, say, a, a, a John Boehner or a John Kasich, and, and there are still a lot of Republicans out there who, are, who, who welcome immigration and who are largely sort of what you might call Main Street business sort of traditional Republicans and limited government, low taxes, that sort of thing. Where do you see that group fitting into this, to this coalition, I guess you could say? Yes, I, I, I must say, I, uh, some of my students, young Republicans, uh, are just tormented in the same way that people like John Boehner, who used to be thought of as a far right conservative when he first came when he first came to Congress. The answer to this, and I spent a lot of time on this in, in my book, uh, my dad was a lifelong Republican. My brother was a lifelong Republican. So I so I have to find some common ground with my <laughs> with my own family. Um, and I think what happened takes us right back, uh, Michael, to the 1964 election, when something very dramatic happened. It was one of the most dramatic conventions in American history, when genuine conservatives rallied around Barry Goldwater. Goldwater, uh, if you go back and read his history, was a, was a good guy. He was very conservative, but he was a genuine small government, no prejudice about him, conservative. I read an article in Time magazine introducing Barry Goldwater, and it, it described how um, he, uh, a uh, principal of a segregated black school went up to him and said, Mr. Goldwater, your um, your family uh, business has always given money to the white schools, but you don't give uh, money to the black schools for graduation. They used to buy gold watches to the to the uh, to the eighth grader with the best uh, best score. And uh, Goldwater said, well, that's because I don't believe in segregation. And the principal said, well, the white schools are as segregated as the black schools. And Goldwater laughed and said, you are right. You'll get the gold watch, too. So this was a man genuinely conservative, um, not not a bigot in any sense. But in that 1964 campaign, in the middle of the civil rights crusade, Goldwater had voted for conservative reasons. He didn't want to give the government, federal government that much power against the Civil Rights Act and all the segregationists all the people fighting Martin Luther King, all the most rabid racists climbed into his coalition. The the stories from the convention floor are harrowing. Uh, Jackie Robinson, the great baseball player, was an alternate uh, delegate for Nelson Rockefeller, one of the Republican candidates that year. And he described what it was like on that convention floor as people shouted the N-word at him and tried to get into fights with him. He, he wrote in the um, in the black press on the front pages, splashed all over uh, the black newspapers that he felt like a Jew in Nazi Germany in the Republican Party. That was the end, incidentally, of the black vote in the Republican Party. But notice what happened. Genuine conservatives who were fighting against big government took over the Republican Party and they turned a blind eye. Goldwater himself was heavily criticized behind the scenes by people like uh, George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, for turning a blind eye as the segregationists came into that party. And so the party, the current Republican Party was born of a devil's bargain, genuine, honest conservatism. And we won't call out 
the racism that has crawled in and the nativism that has crawled into our ranks. It makes people like my dad, made my dad, people like my dad terribly uncomfortable, but they could sort of pretend it was on the side. You see, after the civil rights era, either the civil rights era or the riots of the late 60s, depending on whether you're a Democrat or the Republican telling the story, white people, a majority of white people exited the Democratic Party. Uh, between Richard Nixon's election and Joe Biden's election, uh, that is from 1968 all the way to 2020, the Democratic candidate has averaged 39% of the white vote. Biden did much better. He got 41%. Um, so basically what that meant was originally in the early days of this coalition, the Republicans didn't need to do terribly much to uh, keep this white vote. It had gone Republican. And yes, it included a small knot of genuine hardcore racists. They could be kept in line with an occasional wink, an occasional whistle. There could be denial. White votes were, white votes were already coming to the, the Republican Party. But what began to happen, immigration, African-American votes solidly and more solidly in the Democratic camp. What began to happen is every election, the white percentage of the vote went down about 2% every presidential election. That meant there were fewer and fewer white votes to draw on. You had to go in and make inroads to the Latinx community, the Asian-American community, the African-American community, if you were going to stay a majority party. Donald Trump solved this problem not as many people in the Republican Party wanted to do after Mitt Romney's defeat in 2012, he solved it not by trying to create a broader Republican Party, but by doubling down on that white vote by no more whistles. He had a bullhorn to the people who were racially anxious. So here we have a coalition of genuine conservatives. What they want is less government and all the things that genuine conservatives want. More federalism, less federal authority, uh, more respect for religion, et cetera, et cetera. And you have people who are very racially anxious, who are anxious about gender, who are anxious about immigrants. And they're, well, you know, they're in the party too. And the party now has come to a very important crossroads. Do they double down in that coalition born in 1964 that includes genuine conservatives and, um, and people who have anxious feelings? I'm trying to put it as politely as possible, but racists, nativists, do they dub keep doubling down in that party or do they finally say, enough, we are going to be for genuine um, conservative principles, and we're calling out people who are going to make nativist claims in our party. We are going after the African-American vote, which after all was once a Republican vote. We are going, we're going to appeal to their religious, their social conservatism. We're going to get those votes, seriously, not as window dressing. We're going to get the Latinx votes. And if you believe that, um, you would build a different kind of Republican party. Now, I know my students, they would love that. When I talk to them, they are so hungry for that. 
I believe the majority of the younger generation are sick and tired of the Fox News Republicans. They would like this new Republican Party. And in the next 10 years, we're going to see what has, we're at a very much, I believe, uh, a turning point. And I think one way to get that new Republican Party is to just vastly simplify voting. Many Republicans are, let's, let's cut off votes. Let's not have so many votes. It's completely wrong. You want to change the Republican Party? Throw it wide open. As we did this election, we had the largest turnout since 1900. And look what happened. It was the Latino vote and the Latino vote in Texas and in Florida that saved the Republicans in those states. Republicans ought to say, wait, wait, wait. We want everybody to vote. We're going after that vote. And I believe young Republicans really want to do that. So, yes, as you say, Republican Party has two different tents, and those two tents ought to divorce themselves. That genuine conservatism could make a real foil, a real opponent to the Democratic Party, which would then have to really be pressured into articulating, well, why exactly should African-Americans vote for our party rather than just assuming that, well, this is this is the party they'll vote for because, hey, look at the way the Republicans treat them. And there's a, there's an old saying on the left. We like to say it a lot. Demographics, destiny. And and so a positive spin on this, at least from the left, would be, well, we just have to kind of hang on. And eventually, when the United States becomes a majority minority part uh, country, then, well, these sort of appeals just won't work. And, and in the book, in fact, you write, you know, that if you're a thoughtful Republican, you have to realize that voter suppression is only going to take you so far. So that's a that's a reason, isn't it, for optimism, not just for not just if you're a Democrat, but if you're a Republican who wants to see uh, a different sort of party. Yeah, optimism and pessimism. Let's go with the pessimism okay. and get it over with. Voter suppression can't work. Uh, it's just the numbers aren't there. So if you think you can remain a white party, uh, a white conservative party, by suppressing votes, it's not going to happen unless. And here's the caveat I wrote before this election. Unless you suppress so hard, you destroy the democracy. And I wrote that as a kind of, um, you know, uh, a distant danger. And then what did we yeah. see this time? Yeah. We saw exactly that, that if given a choice between the Republic and winning the election, an awful lot of people chose winning the election. And you can make excuses and say, well, there were lots of lies told and, and so forth. But that is, that is the trend I worry about most, that it's become so intense that the most intense and the most a uh, difficult part of the Republican coalition, the people who really are upset about the idea of working on, for a woman or a black uh, president or vice president or a new uh, increase in immigration, uh, that those people would rather destroy the republic. Trump's a great example. Would rather destroy the republic than lose. So that's the that's the that's the uh, pessimistic side. Um, and I and and it's gotten much worse, much faster than I imagined. And 
on that on that side, let me follow up on that because it's not necessarily just the public. A lot of folks would point to many members of Congress who, in fact, are are egging egging the public on and and you know going going down that route. And in fact, in in your book, you write that Congress is broken because it really wasn't designed to function in this environment we see where there's almost no trust between the parties and and very little cooperation. And I was hoping you could you could talk about the Congress end of this because, of course, until we see some change. We have to sort of deal with the Congress that we happen to have in place right now. The Congress that we have. It's really true. And there's one other thing we should add, which is we have never had a period in which the two parties are so evenly divided. Since since 2000, we have had a change in either the House or the Senate or the president 12 times unprecedented in American history. Uh, the, by the way, the, uh, the old record holder was between, uh, um, 1876 and 1896 with 10 changes. The people used to hold that up as the great period of partisan equality. Well, not anymore. <laughs> We've beaten that. Yeah. So if you're in Congress, I've, I've heard lots of congressmen make this and from both sides of the aisles. You might be, say, a Democrat um, under Trump or a Republican under Biden, and you might feel, well, let's try to have some bipartisanship. Let's get some things passed. And your leadership is very likely to say, what are you, crazy? If we block the other side, we have a chance to win House, Senate and presidency, all of it. Uh, in the next election. And indeed, they do. It's a very unusual situation in American politics. In the past, there was always a majority party and the minority kind of went along because the majority was the majority and the minority kind of began to reflect, like the moon reflects the sun, the majority's perspectives. They fought them, of course, and they tried to win elections, but they knew they couldn't push too far. Now, both sides uh, really try to push too far. and. What we're getting is a complete breakdown in Congress. And as a result, all the power is going to the presidency and the courts. We've really got uh, a republic being broken in front of our eyes as power goes away from Congress, where the Constitution clearly intended to put it, and the president's ruling basically uh, just by executive order and in battle with the courts. So what do we have to do? Congress has to retake uh, policy authority. And the way we do that is to get over our fear of the other side. We just have to permit majorities to rule. We've put so many checks and balances. Uh, You know this, Michael, but if people haven't kept their... Uh, noses in textbooks of political science, they don't appreciate how one member in the Senate can say, I'm putting a hold on that, and they move on to the next issue. So if I bring something up as majority leader, and the minority leader said, no, I got a hold, one member could say, okay, I'm, I'm going to filibuster this. And unless they go through a whole rigmarole, that's it. Uh, one member a hold. And then, of course, 41 members can stop anything because a filibuster takes 60 votes to break is now the new normal for getting any legislation. And each side has kind of uh, kind of agreed with the following proposition. The other side is so toxic that we'll accept not passing anything if we stop them from passing anything. But that is terribly destructive. For five years, for 10 years even, you can get away with that. But you can't get away with it for 20 years. Uh, and so now what we've got, what we've got to do is say, look, 
we're going to turn these into majoritarian institutions insofar as we can. Get rid of the filibuster. Yes, I know it means the Democrats. I can hear you saying, <laughs> oh, my gosh. So next time Trump comes in, he'll get to do what he wants. Yes, is the answer. And then you really get to hold parties to account. Uh, Democrats will pass what they want. Republicans will pass what they want. And you'll actually have legitimate, honest government that someone can hold to account rather than, well, we tried. But, you know, those bums on the other side. I don't know if I can use a stronger <laughs> language on this podcast, but they would use stronger language. Those bums stopped us. Well, stop the stopping. Let's reform Congress. There's lots of ways to do it, but the easiest is to get rid of the filibuster. I know there's lots of reasons to keep the filibuster, but it's choking Congress as an institution in these high partisan times. So yes, we should let it legislate again. That will draw power away from the presidency and the courts, back in Congress where it was intended to be, and let the people hold Congress accountable. We just can't afford the bleeding away from legislation into executive order. We're going to have many, an elected king is what we're going to, what we're going to have. If you look at the process from Bush to Obama, um, uh, to, to, to Trump to Biden, it's, uh, it's a very dangerous trend. So yes, I think we have to reform Congress. Political scientists have a long list of things to do, the committee system, uh, et et cetera, et cetera. But I would start with uh, get rid of the filibuster and make sure that you have as many people voting as possible by simply uh, permitting everyone when they're 18. It's not hard to do. We can do it technologically. Um, but uh, We've got so many uh, technological devices. When you're 18, you get to vote done. That, those two things would go a long way to restoring, restoring our legislature. So the legislators had to worry about everyone and not just their party base. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about voting uh, in a minute here, but I want to pick up on the filibuster thing because uh, we we talk about the filibuster a lot on on the show and and uh, one of my arguments is that you know the filibuster hasn't always been what it is today in fact uh, before 1970 the filibuster was a very different animal when the senate changed its rules and i've i've sort of been on the show a proponent for the kind of the old school pre mike mansfield senate filibuster when you actually had a you know kind of mr smith filibuster if you will at as sort of a compromise position looking for a middle ground allowing the minority to still kind of rise up on the occasional issue but not make it the de facto 60 votes do you think that there's any possibility for a, a compromise on this issue, or do you think it it's kind of has to be an all or nothing? You know, I'm glad you asked that, because I have been thinking there are compromises. Let's go to the history for a, a brief moment. On average, you'd have one filibuster, maybe two a session, and almost always, not always, and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, of course, it was to stop corruption, uh, a brave moment in American film politics. Uh, but almost all of them were to stop civil rights acts. If you go back through time, the South basically used the filibuster to stop the Civil Rights Act. But as you say, uh, first of all, you had to keep talking. If you stopped talking, um, the other side would just leap in. So it was very hard work. If anybody has seen the pictures of the great civil rights filibuster uh, in 1964, they brought in cots to the uh, to the chamber. Uh, to the Senate chambers and people would lie down and take a nap and then go back to talking. It went on for three months. Just imagine the headlines day after day after day, the filibuster continues. Well, you couldn't filibuster every issue like that. 
If I were a, a majority leader Schumer, I would go to minority leader McConnell and I'd say, the average used to be two filibusters, Mitch. You've got two. I'll give you two filibusters each year even. And after that, we are going to stop the filibuster. So some kind of compromise could be worked out. Even if Mitch said, no, I want four. Of course, Mitch would say, I want 100. But you <laughs> have to negotiate them down to two, three, four. And then you could go back to what the filibuster really was meant to be. Though remember, it stopped civil rights. But it was meant to be, we feel like our very existence is at stake in this. Um, we are going to this we're going to drop this huge bomb uh, if it were a nuclear option rather than just part of the normal course of things. That would be a different thing. And you, I, you could imagine the Republicans saying, we only got two of these, but this one is well worth it. Um, and, and you'd have to work out some kind of compromise deal. And you, it would be clear if you want the old fashioned Senate, but one that works, let's have the old fashioned Senate. We use this once, maybe twice twice a, uh, a year, once or twice a session, even there are two, two years in a session. But uh, there are some things we have to rule out of bounds. And that is we're not going to stop civil rights legislation. Uh, you, you might actually say we're, we're calling these things sacrosanct. Notice what's sacrosanct today. Budgets. So the financial stuff, that's sacrosanct. Up and down the, um, the, the congressional process. People don't know about the OMB, the, the agency that can say no, that says no. But if you're a cabinet member or and you want to do anything, write a paper, go on the Politics Guys podcast, anything, you have to go to OMB, Office of Management and Budget, the financial people, and say, here's what I'm going to say, may I do it? And some kid at OMB can say, no, you may not. And then you can't. You invite a cabinet member onto this show. If OMB says no, they can't do it. Look at how we've entrenched uh, financial policy. You can understand why. You've got to get the budget passed. Uh, you've got to be able to fund the government. But I think there's some other things having to do with democracy that should be just as sacred. And they should be beyond politics as well. We ought to think about the things we structure into the process uh, in that in that way. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting your take on bipartisanship. And we've kind of uh, revolved, talked about it, at least indirectly in that in the book. In fact, you have a great line saying that the dirty little secret of bipartisanship is that it usually only happens when one side is cowed or beat out of fresh ideas. And, and that really goes against the grain of what a lot of people are saying. And you, you say it's a commonplace, appealing, but wrong solution to our current dilemma. And that's trying to encourage more bipartisanship. And in fact, you go just the other way, but you kind of get there in a very different way, I think, than a lot of folks. Absolutely. Bipartisanship is the great myth of American politics never happened and it doesn't happen. Uh, as a political scientist, I say that's great. You know, we're, we're meant to argue different principles. That's, that's what a republic, that's what a democracy is. But there's this lure of bipartisanship. And the more you study history, the more you realize what nonsense it is. Um, you know, the golden age of bipartisanship uh, is the start of the Cold War. When uh, a Republican senator from Michigan, Vandenberg, uh, had a wonderful quote. He said, politics must stop at the water's edge. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> what else was going on in 1946 at the hands of the uh, of good Senator Vandenberg? Why a red scare was developing. The uh, the the right wing in Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, understood that they could use international policy to crucify the liberals, to kill the communists, to get the whole left running. And we had this great and terrible red scare right in the era. Everyone else thinks they see bipartisanship. Go back in time. You never see genuine bipartisanship. What you do sometimes see is someone who's so powerful that the other side hides under their desks. Franklin Roosevelt in the middle of the Great Depression. The Republicans were very worried about taking him on until his power began to wane a little bit. And indeed, the Depression began to ameliorate. Ronald Reagan riding high, sweeping 12 senators in with him to take uh, to take the Senate really for the first time uh, for more than one uh, one election cycle since 1930. Uh, so this is in 1980. So Democrats were genuinely cowed. Reagan didn't say, well, let's cut the differences halfway. He knew what he believed. Roosevelt dramatically. He didn't say, well, let's let's extend a hand to the Hooverites. We're in this Great Depression. Let's cut the difference. No, he didn't. He refused. Hoover kept trying to reach out to him and he wouldn't even answer. He wouldn't even answer the telegrams. No, no, you you bask in the you you marinate in the problems you created i'll start fresh the whole notion that in some golden era we were bipartisan is just a myth i wrote an op-ed which got a lot of play back when barack obama took over he was desperately trying and all to, to reach out to the republicans and all the all the wise old men were saying in Washington were saying, oh, it's very important. And meanwhile, what are the Republicans doing? They buy a very expensive bottle of wine and all the leaders sign their name and they say, we'll open this bottle when we take over the House and the Senate again. Uh, and of course, within two years, they've taken over the House because all the incentives for them were to tie up poor Barack Obama in knots. Now, this lesson is being learned. The bipartisan, a wonderful ideal, but you don't do democracy any good when you say we'll split the difference. Republicans genuinely believe that healthcare is a market good. Democrats genuinely believe it's a human right. That those are really just different views. We ought to have it out. We ought to battle it out. And the winner ought to legislate rather than say, well, it's half a market good and half a human right. No, it's not. I'm a Democrat. I believe it's a human right. If you're sick, you shouldn't be looking in your wallet to see how much money you have, nor should your doctor. Uh, Now, if you're a Republican, you say, that's a market good. Fine, let's debate it. But the idea that we'll solve it, that we'll get a better healthcare system, trying to merge these two things, it's mythology. And the more I study history, the more I see what a deep myth it is. So everyone listening to this, just abjure your natural inclination to want to be bipartisan. Never worked, never has worked, will not work. So, okay, so then what, what it sounds like you're saying is basically let the people speak, let them unrig the system, if you will, and then let the let the majority do what it will do and face the consequences. And the, the first question or the first thing that would jump to the mind of a lot of folks, I think, on the right would be, what about vote fraud? Yeah, vote fraud has been this great uh, fear. Um, and, you know, when um, when the Whigs 
put in registration to stop Democrats from voting, uh, particularly uneducated Democrats. The Democrats were insisting that uh, that literacy tests uh, shouldn't stop people from voting. They immediately hit on voter fraud as the reason for registration. When the Civil War happened and we tried to reconstruct the South and give African-Americans the vote, the whites who hated the idea of equality with their former slaves immediately resurrected the idea of voter fraud to stop uh, African-Americans, former slaves, from voting. Um, the cry of voter fraud, if you look at it historically, has been used for more mischief, has been used maliciously throughout American history. Just being aware of the history of cries of voter fraud makes you uh, careful about crying too loudly. This, you ha if you want to shout voter fraud, show us the evidence of voter fraud. Has there been voter fraud in American history? Absolutely. Boss Tweed of New York used to say, vote early, vote often. Um, and there was in the machine era, deep voter fraud. So we're kind of hardwired to hear that. But this cannot be a evidence-free charge because when it is, it's been used for the deepest racist nativist purposes. That's how we've used it. We've used it to genuinely clean up the system. We've used it to drive people we don't like out of the system. And one of the great themes of my book, and it's something I've said several times now on this podcast, is the extent to which the parties now reflect the tribes, all the so-called minorities on one side, anxious whites all on the other side. Um, and that makes this old legacy of crying voter fraud when you want to drive the other side away from the polls all the more frightening today. If you want to call voter fraud, okay, but it's on you to show voter fraud because you're, if you have no evidence, then we have to accuse you of simple racism. And frankly, we just had a great experiment in this. If there had been voter fraud, surely Surely a few of these cases that came up in court after court, left, right, uh, Obama appointment, appointees, Trump appointees, surely a couple of them would have taken. Uh, here are courts that are willing to strike down health care for 24 million people. They're not lefty courts. And yet they found no evidence of voter fraud. Indeed, even Rudolph Giuliani, when he goes before a court, he was not showing evidence of voter fraud. He was not asking to turn over uh, uh, any state's vote because there wasn't enough evidence for it. And remember, yes, there's been voter fraud in American history. And yes, the charge of voter fraud has been used for the deepest racist and nativist reasons. And I fear if you come no, with no evidence, then we need to charge you with nativism and racism, because that's what it comes down to. You point out this this election and, you know, there was a, an editorial, I think it was, that Ben Sass had, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, about saying that part of the problem, it seems to me, is that we're in a media environment where even though in court, you know, as you point out, Julian and the others didn't actually allege widespread vote fraud, they were certainly saying something different to the public to the point where not only do you have tens of millions of people who 
honestly and sincerely believe there was massive fraud. But then you have politicians saying, well, I don't know, but there are all these people saying this sort of thing. And so maybe this is something we need to pass some laws to make sure we don't have this vote fraud. And it becomes kind of a, a downward cycle, which which Sass, to his credit, was saying, you know, that that's nonsense. But it seems to me the problem is trying to trying to make those claims of truth stick in the media environment we have where truth almost seems to be at a disadvantage. Yes, that's such a good point. Um, and, uh, and it is true. The media environment is really extraordinary. Still, it's not unprecedented. If you go back and read the newspapers from the 1860s, they were Democratic newspapers and they were Republican newspapers. In fact, it's really fun to watch the, or to, to read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, the famous debates in 1958 between the white uh, supremacist Democrat uh, uh, versus uh, Abraham Lincoln, the rising Republican. And if you read the Republican newspapers, uh, Abraham Lincoln smote uh, Douglas mighty blows, and Douglas was practically on the ground, whimpering. Um, and then you go and you think, well, of course, that's what made uh, uh, Lincoln president. And then you go across to the Democratic papers, and Douglas was triumphant and carried off the entire crowd, was so swayed by the little giant's rhetoric that they carried him off on their shoulders. Completely different, uh, completely different truths, completely different stories. Uh, and today it's become even more intense. Two things to say about today. One simply reflects something I've said before, that when you look at the actual audiences for so much of this media, they're really relatively small. It's the people who have politics on their minds like you and me, 24 hours a day who are consuming and consuming media. There are a lot of people, as political scientists have shown, who eh, sort of hear some of it, but they're on the periphery. We have to take the vote away from people like us who are intense about politics and give it to everyone. If you really had widespread voting, you the the party uh, that the people in Congress would be less worried about their party base. Uh, so I imagine 90% turnout, and we could do it if we really set our minds to it, and if we change the rules to allow it, that would mean not just the people who spend all day, every day, uh, like my son, on the social media getting deeper and deeper in, but also all the people who are not uh, all that intense and want to hear from both sides. So that's, an, I think, uh, just getting, getting, the, getting the vote expanded, I think, is, a, is an important answer to that. There's one final thing to say. As soon as Simon and Schuster uh, start saying, well, we're not going to let Hawley have his contract, the morals clause has been breached, or when you have uh, Facebook um, and uh, Twitter say we're no longer going to carry the Trump channel, everybody starts screaming right to free speech. Now, look, the right to free speech is a government constructed right that has to do with government action. We leave the private sector to make money on its own. We don't tell them, well, you can run this business as long as you give everyone an equal say. Um, we 
the right to free speech doesn't exist in the private sector. Chasing dollars is what exists in the private sector, which is why progressives through history, and I mean the historical progressives, not Democrats, not a fancy word for Democrats today, have always said when some media becomes so important um, that it's impossible to be political without it, it needs to be carefully regulated by the government because only the government can assert free speech. The First Amendment starts, Congress shall make no law. It's about government action. If you're a Republican listening out there and you're thinking what they did to Trump was outrageous, it violated his free speech. Guess what? Twitter has no uh, requirement of free speech because Twitter is in it to make money. Free speech is a government creation. But we've always known if something is vital to the basic lifeblood of America, whether it's railroads, television, radio, uh, airwaves, um, we've regulated it to make sure all voices are heard. And what we need to do in social media today is pull back. And now Democrats and Republicans are kind of agreed on this. It's one of those rare places where we have bipartisanship, where we have a, 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 an overlap of interests. Thanks to what happened in the last year of the Trump administration, uh, that is him getting kicked off Twitter. Um, we now have interests on both sides to think, hmm, this is social media is essential to democracy. But we also want to make sure it's not just run as a business. Whatever is good for business is what we're going to do, but run as a way as a as a as a platform for ideas. That means government has to come in. I know Republicans hate this. But markets and and profits will not get us free speech. They'll not get Trump back on Twitter. They won't get Hawley back in his contract. What we need to do is think if this medium is essential for democracy, for speech, then we need to figure out how to make it fair. And that requires serious government intervention. It's what historically we did for railroads, what we did for airlines, what we did for radio, what we did for television, and what we now need to do for social media. If not, as you asked in your question, everybody will go down the rabbit holes. And my little answers, like, oh, my gosh, let's get everybody voting. Um, and we've had this before, won't be enough to stop the, it'll help, but it won't be enough. They need to be regulated. And final question for you. So how optimistic are you that we'll do, if not all this, that would be asking too much, but <laughs> kind of enough so that we can perhaps pull out to a certain extent to out of the dysfunction that we see ourselves in and become better functioning or at least more sort of normally functioning, I guess you could say. Okay. Let me give you the what makes me nervous, which I sort of already said, and then what gives me hope. What makes me nervous is watching the Republican Party. I'm just going to be blunt about this, going down, going crazy, really going down a rabbit hole um, that is willing to overthrow an election. Look, we have a two party system. The rules mean we'll always have a two party system. All you out there who are hoping to start a third party. It has never happened in American history. Even ex-president Teddy Roosevelt, incredibly popular, couldn't manage to start a third party. The rules are biased against it unless we fundamentally change those rules. We need two good, honest, functioning parties, each of which belong in democracy. And I've, I've already said that I have great hope when I look at my own students and my recent students who are conservative. I have great hope that they will help reform the Republican Party. But I just hope they're in time. 
Now, uh, there are things the Democratic Party needs to do, too. They can be pretty feckless, and they've lost the working class, which is quite extraordinary for a party that claims uh, to, um, to, to, to speak for the working class. So let me just say, in my book, I suggest there's a job for Republicans to do and a job for Democrats to Absolutely. do. Absolutely. But let me get to the positive. You know, if you study American history, the, the biggest message that you can find is things are always changing. It's a remarkable how fast and how deeply things change. Let me give you an example. Back when Mike Dukakis ran against George uh, Herbert Walker Bush in 1988, um, Dukakis knew a few things. He knew, for example, that he would win West Virginia. It didn't matter what he did. He's going to win West Virginia because West Virginia was blue, blue, blue. Now, two to one Republican. And Michael Dukakis knew he was going to lose Vermont and California. California had gone Republican in eight out of the nine previous presidential elections. It was only the, the, the Lyndon Johnson go, uh, Lyndon Johnson landslide in 64 that briefly broke that trend. So it was a red, red state. And now look, it's two to one Democrat, even more. It's pure blue. So anytime you think, well, it's kind of set in stone, forget about it. Things are changing. They're changing all the time. And two things, I see two changes coming along. Um, one is I talked I've got a lot of students. I, I've talked to hundreds of, of I've got a, a class of hundreds of students that I that I teach. And I I just have a lot of faith that that generation is really different. The millennials just feel different to me. They they care more about genuinely patching things up. They don't like all this arguing in ways that 20 years ago just weren't imaginable. So I really believe that the younger generation is going to want a new politics. And there's lots of evidence um, that as they mature into power, that they'll just be a, a more thoughtful generation and a more, they'll want to make the kinds of changes that we're suggesting here, open up the vote, uh, look for ways that each party can achieve uh, policy principles rather than tribal victories. And there's one other thing that I think I see, and this is controversial, but the way I see it makes me very positive. Throughout American history, there's always been a binary. You were black or you were white. Different immigrant groups would come, like the Irish or the Italians or the Jews, and they would, um, and they would quickly suss out America. And they would, while originally seen as a different race, they would claim whiteness. They would claim whiteness and become part of the white majority. And the binary, white versus black, would persist generation across generation. I think I see many things going on in the current immigrant generation, but particularly young immigrants have an impatience with that binary that I think may be unprecedented in American history. If you ask the young Chinese American, how do you see yourself as basically, where do you fit in the racial binary? They'll roll their eyes at you. They'll say, I'm not in that game. I am who I am. I am Asian Americans are Asian Americans. And frankly, uh, Japanese Americans are different from Chinese Americans are different from Filipino Americans. Take us as who we are. No generation in the past has said quite that 
quite that way. So I'm counting on two things. One, the younger generation to say, you know, we really want to go back to policy debates and we want to scream about them a little less loudly. And the new immigrants to say, and this could go multiple ways, but I see a trend in which they're saying, stop putting us on your old American racial binary and just take us for what we are, whether we're Latinx or Asian or for Indian Americans or whatever we are. And if that's true, the deepest binary in American history will begin to fragment. And boy, that will be a good thing. And my book, 20 years from now, will be completely out of date <laughs> because the idea that we're tribal will be like, what's that about? Let's argue about national health insurance. And that debate, I guarantee you, will still be going on uh, when, when you have me back 20 years <laughs> from now on whatever book we've been, uh, we've been thinking about. Well, I've never said this before, but I certainly hope that in 20 years your book will be completely out of out of date and uh, on that optimistic note uh, I just want to thank you Professor Marone for your time it's been it's been great talking with you today what a pleasure this has been it's really been fun and uh, amazing how well and carefully you read my book so thanks for that I, I really enjoyed being on on your podcast my pleasure that's it for today's show we hope you like what you heard if you'd like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every single week, as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode, as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, to email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.